You know, one of, the, one of the great grace gifts, and I say this often, it's true. One of the great grace gifts that God has given to me and to Tracy in our ministry over the last 25 years has been the privilege of being able to uh, guide pilgrims on Bible study uh, tours of the Holy Land. Tracy and I first went to Israel in 1997. Uh, in fact, we went as a gift. Our church, uh, North Asheville Baptist at the time, that was our eighth anniversary serving here in 1997. And the church sent us to Israel for the very first time. And we fell in love with the people and the land and understanding the value of studying the scriptures there. And almost every single year up into the last couple of years, we've been there every year. And, and almost every one of those times taking groups with us. I led my first or co-hosted my first tour to Israel in 1999 and, uh, and we'll leave in a few weeks with our 32nd tour group. But one of, the, one of the great privileges that I have had is to take people to these places that we read about in the scriptures and to teach the Bible there and to let them study the scriptures in those places. And I just have to say to you, there's, if you ever get the chance to go, and not everybody can, I understand that, but if, if God ever allows you to go, I just want to say to you, there's nothing quite like studying the Bible in the very locations where the text that you're reading is occurring. As an example, there's nothing quite like reading Matthew 14 where Jesus comes walking on the water to a boat on the Sea of Galilee while you're in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it's a whole different level of of, uh, understanding, okay? Uh, There's nothing quite like reading about Jesus preaching in the synagogue of Capernaum when you're sitting in the synagogue in Capernaum. Or nothing like reading about Joshua leading the children of Israel across the river Jordan at Jericho when you're standing with your toes in the river Jordan at Jericho. I'm just telling you, there's nothing quite like it. And so over the years as we've taken people there, we've sort of developed this method for helping people encounter both you know, the Bible, the scriptures, and the Lord in those places. And I sometimes call this method um, the, the teach, the time, and the travel method. And so here's what it means. It means that we go to a, a location, like I've just been describing, I will teach the Bible, the, the passage, the text there briefly, and then we will give, in, in some of those places where we can, we'll give some time. And that is just white space on the calendar. So there's no teaching. It's just, we'll get you to that place, and then I kind of back away and just let you be alone. Give 10, 15 minutes to be quiet and have a personal devotion there, and then we'll move on to the next place. Here's what I've discovered. That the greatest impact that happens in people's lives in those moments, on those trips, is not the time that I'm teaching. Can you imagine how disappointed I am by that? (laughs) It's not that they're super impressed with what I'm teaching there, but it is that they are there alone with Jesus, just quiet in his presence in that place. One of my favorite places to do this, to leave people alone and give them some quiet space, is, uh, is on a mountain, on the side of a, of a hill. We, it's called a mountain, and we would call it a hill. We have mountains around here. They're really hills uh, in that particular area. But it's, it's on the side of a mountain next to the Sea of Galilee. I brought a, I brought a picture of it. Isn't that beautiful? Um, this, this, uh, you can see the Sea of Galilee up there about 11 o'clock, the blue. That's the, the Sea of Galilee. And this church is called the Church of the Beatitudes. 
Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. We only know where he came off the lake, and the Bible says that he went up into a mountain. So we know it was that lake. We, we know the area of the lake where he came off, and we know the hills that surround it. So we don't know exactly that it was that spot, but we know it was somewhere in that area that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. It was in this area where this, this famous message, this famous sermon of Jesus was delivered. And it began, that sermon did, with eight pronouncements of blessing. Eight declarations of what it is to be blessed or blessed or to have a blessed life. And we call those the Beatitudes. And so for the next four weeks, we are going to be thinking together about these eight pronouncements of blessing that begin the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Let's let's just read them today, beginning in chapter number 5 and verse number 1. The Bible says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, And shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now in verse 12 the Beatitudes conclude. That's the foundation if you will. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And beginning in verse number 13, the actual body of the sermon begins, and it goes all the way through chapter number 7. But he continues out of these Beatitudes by giving two, sort of a, a, a couplet, if you will, of parables that uh, these new followers of his needed to understand. Let me just read a few more verses. Verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is therefore good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden under the foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but rather they put it on a candlestick and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Now, I would encourage you to take some time this afternoon and go ahead and finish chapter number five in your own reading, as well as chapter six and chapter seven, and just read the whole sermon. 
But I want to spend our time together today, and we'll be referencing throughout, throughout all three of those chapters as we study the first 12 verses uh, over the next month. But I really want to begin today by just introducing to you the Sermon on the Mount and then, and then getting into these first uh, couple of Beatitudes as we near the end. If you're going to understand the message that Jesus preached on that mountain that we were looking at a moment ago, you really need to go back a couple of chapters to really get the context of why, what motivates him to preach this message. So turn back, if you will, to chapter number three. Here's what you'll discover in Matthew chapter number three. Matthew 3 describes for us the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes, according to Matthew chapter number 3, preaching the kingdom of God. Look at it, verse number 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here's his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What John's message is, very simply, is this. He didn't have a, a, a repertoire of, of, of messages. He didn't have a, a great volumes of content. He really only had one message. And the message was singular. The kingdom of God is here. Get ready. The kingdom of God is coming. Prepare for it. And the way that you prepare for the kingdom, according to John's message, John's preaching, is that you would repent. Now, by the way, John had an amazing response to his ministry. People came from all over. You can read it in chapter 3. They came from all over to come into the desert to hear this man who was dressed in, in uh, uh, camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey, leather belt. I mean, he's just a, a man's man kind of preaching. They came out to hear him. And they were following him in, in repentance, and he was baptizing them to demonstrate their repentance. They were responding to this message because they were not surprised by or confused by the fact that he was talking about the kingdom of God coming. Their entire lives, they had heard the promise that the kingdom of God was coming. They had been looking, they were trained as children to look for the coming kingdom of God. The Old Testament promised over and over again that one day God would bring a kingdom into this world. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, we read it back at Christmas where the Bible says, the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet saying, behold a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God is coming to bring a kingdom. Isaiah 9 Verses 6 and 7, let me just read them to you. You know them as Christmas verses, but they're really not. They're really kingdom verses. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and his peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That, that's a verse where the Bible is saying that this king is coming. The kingdom of God is coming to the earth. In Psalm 24. The psalmist talks about a king coming into Jerusalem and the gates of Jerusalem being flung open to receive this king. And it says, who is this king of glory coming in? It is the king, the Lord of hosts, 
who's coming. I'm simply saying to you, everything about their spiritual training, everything about their worship in the synagogues, everything about the psalms that they sang, everything that they had learned said to them, one day God is bringing a kingdom. And then John the Baptist shows up and says, get ready, because it's here. The king is coming. It's near. Verse number 11, he begins to tell them a bit about this king that's coming. I'm back in Matthew 3. In verse 11, John says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to unlace his shoes. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He's saying he's here. And then in fact, the Bible tells us in chapter 3 of Matthew in verse number 13, that while John is preaching about the kingdom and the king, and he's telling them that God's fulfilling his promises, one day in the midst of his sermon and in the midst of his baptizing, Jesus of Nazareth comes walking down to the river and he baptizes him and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And that marks the beginning of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus to bring in the kingdom of God. That's the background in Matthew chapter number 3 to this sermon that Jesus is going to preach. He's baptized at the end of chapter 3. In chapter number 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And then immediately, look at verse number 17, chapter 4, verse 17. Immediately after coming out of that temptation in the wilderness. Verse 17 says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began to preach. Now, if y'all listening, I want you to shout amen. Can I say just a word to you? I'm just going to take a little sideline for just a second, all right? Can I say just a word to you about preaching? Can I preach about preaching for just a minute? Do you realize that in our day, in Western, modern Christianity, preaching seems to be falling out of favor. Preaching is no longer valued in very many congregations. Sadly, many seminaries are turning out young preachers whose heads are filled with knowledge but who know nothing about preaching. And pulpits are filled with men who pride themselves on giving talks and tacking on a bit of scripture to their talk, but not feeling like they ever want to be preachy. In fact, preaching is called preachy, and we often hear, well, people don't want to be preached to, and I don't want to sound preachy. If y'all are listening, shout Amen. I'm not padding my own job description here, but I'm just telling you what we need in this day is preaching. Amen? We need preaching. The Old Testament prophets, they were preachers. And John the Baptist didn't come talking. He came preaching. And when Jesus began his ministry, he didn't say, let me just share some thoughts with you and give you some philosophy and I just want to have a conversation. He stood up and he preached. I'm telling you, we need preaching. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God chose by the foolishness of preaching to save them that would believe. 
Now, he didn't say that he chose to save people through foolish preaching. There's a difference, right? Because there is such a thing as foolish preaching. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians is that the world, the world thinks preaching is foolish. But for those of us who know Christ, we don't see preaching the cross as foolish. We see it as the power of God unto salvation. And it's precious to us. So God has decided that he would take the wisdom of the world and turn it on its head. And he would take what the world thinks is foolish, preaching, and he would decide to save people through what they once thought was foolish, which is preaching. I used to think preaching was foolish until one day a preacher stood up and he preached to me the truth of the gospel and that gospel became precious to me and now I love, love, love preaching. You understand? What we need in this day is preaching. Can I get a witness? That's my side note. Back to the text, all right? Jesus, chapter 4, verse number 17, Jesus came preaching. Notice what he said. He said in verse number 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. He says that this is good news. In fact, the Bible says in verse number 23 that Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus came preaching. Now notice the Bible also says that Jesus came healing. Look at it, verse number 23. Jesus went about Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner, all different kinds of sickness and all manner of disease among him. And so his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all the sick people that were taken with various diseases and torments and those that were uh, lunatic, that is mental illness, those that were, had the palsy, he healed them. So Jesus is preaching Jesus is also healing. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is Jesus healing people? Did Jesus come to heal? Was that the reason he came to earth? No. But why does he heal people as a part of his ministry on the earth? Let me give you what I think are two important reasons. Okay, Number one is to demonstrate the character of the kingdom. To say that you live in a broken world in the kingdom of this earth. But I'm coming to bring another kingdom. My kingdom is whole. Your kingdom is broken. My kingdom is well. Your kingdom is sick. My kingdom is perfect. Your kingdom is imperfect. So he's demonstrating that one day we will live in a world, we will live in a place where there will be, according to Revelation, no sickness, no death, No disease. Praise God for that. He's coming and healing to demonstrate that the the character of that kingdom. But, and maybe even more importantly, he's coming with healing in order to confirm or affirm his message. In order to affirm the reality that he is in fact the king, the Messiah. Because it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. It's easy to say come into the kingdom of God. But the healing, the power to heal proved that he was who he said he was. In fact, turn over to Matthew chapter 9 just quickly. Let me show you an example of this. Go to Matthew chapter 9 and look at verse number 1. Matthew 9, 1. It says, Jesus entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. That's Capernaum. And behold, they brought unto him a man sick with a palsy, lying on on a cot or a bed. 
And seeing Jesus, and Jesus seeing their faith, said to the sick of the palsy, Some be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven. Now, this is the text that you know from both Mark and Luke, where four friends brought a friend, and they couldn't get near Jesus. He was in the house, and so they go up on the house to take the roof off or open up the roof, and they lower him down. Same text, same, same uh, healing uh, event. He says in verse number two, Son, be of good cheer, your sins be forgiven. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes, uh, forgiving sins. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil thoughts in your heart? For which is easier to say, your sins be forgiven, or arise and take up your bed and walk? Verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of God has power on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Do you see? Jesus healed the sick man in order to prove that he had the power to forgive the sick man, in order to demonstrate that he was, in fact, the king. So go back to Matthew chapter number four. Jesus comes preaching. Jesus comes healing. And because of his healing and because of his message, verse 25 of chapter four says, there followed him great multitudes of people. You can imagine, can't you? The word spreads like wildfire. This John the Baptist that's had such a ministry saying the king is here, well now he's been replaced by the actual king, King Jesus. And Jesus is preaching and people are coming to his message and Jesus is healing and so they're bringing sick people and so they're coming from everywhere. Look at verse 25. These great multitudes followed him from Galilee, that entire region around the lake. From Decapolis, that is to the south and to the um, east of the lake from Jerusalem that's to the southwest from Judea the area around Jerusalem and even from beyond the Jordan River they are coming from everywhere to join in his kingdom to be healed and to be a part of this great movement and then you come to chapter 5 verse 1 and look how that chapter that verse begins and seeing the multitudes When Jesus saw that because of his preaching and because of his healing, they were bringing the sick, they were coming from everywhere, throngs of people were around him. We want to be a part of your kingdom. We love this. You're the Messiah. You're going to deliver us. You're going to heal us. We want to be a part. When he saw the multitude, he knew that he needed to tell them the reason he came, the nature of his kingdom, and what it was, in fact, that they were signing up for. And the result of that burden is the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he is teaching them the nature, the character, the conduct of the kingdom. And it begins with the Beatitudes. Now, what does Jesus teach them beginning with the Beatitudes and in this sermon. Write this down. Jesus teaches them and us in this sermon that the kingdom of heaven is distinct from the world. I want you to write that down. We're going to talk about it. The kingdom of heaven is distinct from, separate from, the world. Here's another way to say it. The people within the kingdom are different than the people in the world. Do you see this? Do you see how Jesus separates every person in the world, those who are in the kingdom and those who are not in the kingdom? Look at it in chapter number five and verse number three. You'll see it. 
Verse number three, he says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Very clearly, the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to everybody. Not everybody is a part of the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse 3, the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice how he does this again in verse number 11. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. You see the division? There are some people, he calls them you in this passage, those he's speaking to. There are some people who are with Christ, and because they are with Christ, they will be persecuted by other people. Men, blessed are you, who are with me when those people persecute you because of me. Do you see the division? People in the kingdom are distinct from people who aren't in the kingdom. Look at verse number 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Again, do you see the difference? There are some people who have a heavenly Father. And there are other people for whom God is not their heavenly Father. So he says to those for whom God is their heavenly Father, you live in such a way, let your light so shine so that those people will see your good works and glorify your Father. And they will want him to be their father as well. Here's the point. The kingdom is distinct from the world. The people in the kingdom are different from the people who are not in the kingdom. Some of you may be thinking, well, I know that. I know that heaven is different than the world. And you misunderstand. I'm not talking about people in heaven are different from people in the world. I'm not talking about the location of heaven is different than the location of the earth. Jesus isn't talking about heaven, the celestial heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God on the earth. Can I show it to you again? Look at chapter 3, verse number 2. What does John preach? What does John say? Repent so that you can go to heaven in the sky. Is that what he said? No. He didn't say repent so you can go to heaven up there. He said repent. Heaven has come to you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at what Jesus says in chapter 4 and verse number 17. From that time forth, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven. Is, is future? Is in the clouds? No, it's here. It's now. It says the same thing. I mentioned to you already, chapter 4, verse number 23. He came preaching the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. I want you to get this, okay? I want you to write it down. It is, a, it is a kingdom fact that you never need to forget. Write it down. Jesus did not come simply to take us from earth to heaven, but he came to bring heaven down to earth. Do you understand this? Christianity is not simply all about pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. One glad morning, when the trumpet sounds, I'll fly away. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Praise God. I'm glad for all of that. But Jesus didn't just come to take us from earth to heaven. He came to bring heaven to the earth. And one day, 
we know that his kingdom will literally, physically come to earth. Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven open, Christ coming to the earth, many crowns, King of kings and Lord of lords. His kingdom is coming to the earth, but his kingdom is here now. And his kingdom is here now and it exists and expands in this world through his people. So what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is that within his kingdom, those of us within his kingdom are to live a distinct life from those outside of the kingdom. Go to verse number 13, chapter 5 and verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Turn to your neighbor and say that to them. Tell them, you are the salt of the earth. Tell them. Yeah. You. You who are in my kingdom, you are the salt of this earth. Now, loved ones, salt is not the same as what you put it on. Salt is different than what you put it on. That's why you add it. Because what you have Whatever the meal is that you're eating, it tastes one way. It is one experience. You want it different than what it is, and so you add something to it. Jesus said in the kingdom, you are different than the world. And you are to salt the earth. What does salt do? It flavors. Salt provokes thirst. In the kingdom, you are the salt, or in this world, you are the salt of the earth. And so you are to flavor your place of business. With the kingdom of God. Listen to me. Listen. If y'all are listening, shout amen. You go to work tomorrow. You're surrounded in your, in your office or in your plant or in the hospital or on the classroom or on the job site. You're surrounded. You're surrounded by people who are not in the kingdom. You are, they, they are not in the kingdom of God. God is not their father. And you are part of the kingdom. He says, you are to flavor that office with the kingdom of God. You are to salt that job site with the kingdom of God. You are to provoke those in that world to be thirsty for what you have. Salt stops the spread of corruption. We put salt in a wound to heal it. We put salt on meat to preserve it. You are to carry the preservation, the preserving character of the kingdom of God into that place where you go every day. Students, when you walk into a classroom or you walk down the hallway of your high school or your middle school or your university campus, you are the salt of the earth. Do you understand? Salt is different. Look at verse number 13, verse 14 rather. He says in that verse, not only are you the salt of the earth, but you, that is you, you people who are in my kingdom, you are the light of the world. The world by its very nature is dark. The world is shrouded, covered in sin. The world is plummeted into separation from God. Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. This world is dark. And yet the Bible says that we who are in the kingdom have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And so we are to go into the darkness like glow sticks, like flashlights, bringing the light of the kingdom of God. So here's the question. 
How do you, a follower of Jesus, you, a member of the kingdom of God, living in a, in a world of corruption and darkness that needs the flavor and the light of the kingdom, how do you carry that flavor? How do you carry that light into the kingdom of the earth? There's one way. And it is by embracing the character and the nature of the kingdom. Let me say it this way. By embracing the attitudes, the beatitudes of the kingdom. So look at what the text says. The text tells us, verse number one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Nine times in nine verses, you read this word, blessed, 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 blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. The word blessed, I want you to write this down. We're going to talk about it for a second. Many people view the word blessed as happiness. Jesus teaches us here that happiness is different in the kingdom of heaven. Happiness is different for the believer than it is for the non-believer. Nine times in nine verses, he says, blessed. You might have a translation. The Bible says, happy are, happy are, happy are those who do this. And that's okay. It's not a terrible translation, but it doesn't convey the full meaning of really what is in view here. Happiness is to be pleased with, to feel good about a particular circumstance. I'm happy in my job. I'm happy that it was sunny yesterday, so the roads melted and we got to come to church today. Or the ice on the roads melted, the roads didn't melt. We got to come to church today. I'm happy we're going to Disneyland this summer, or I'm happy, whatever it might be, right? That's happiness. But when Jesus talks about being blessed, he's talking about a word which means to be living under the good fortune of God. To be living under the good fortune of God. Or another way to say it would simply be to be living in God's blessing. Someone has, has rightly noted that the opposite of blessed is not unhappy. So the opposite of happy is unhappy. But the opposite of blessed is not unhappy. The opposite of blessed, if you're listening, say amen, is to be cursed. Because I'm either living under God's blessing or I'm living under God's curse. One of those two things is true. There's no in-between. Blessed, happy in God's great blessing are these people. Jesus teaches us in the Beatitudes the pathway to blessedness. Let me wrap up here at the end just by getting into these first two Beatitudes and then we'll really pick up the Beatitudes next week um, as, we, as we continue. Write this down. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's no difficulty understanding what Jesus means here. It's clear as day. Blessed are the poor. The, the word poor means to be poor, but not in terms of wealth or money, like I don't have much money. It means to have my head turned down, kind of to be crouched, it's the idea of humility. It's like this. I'm, I'm poor. 
But it's not poor in terms of earthly wealth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word spirit simply means that that part of me that is my inner man that's going to live forever, that part that is my soul, or as he words it in verse 3, my spirit. So to be poor in spirit is to have a correct assessment of my spiritual condition. In my spirit, I am poor. In my soul, I am bankrupt toward God. In my inner man, I have nothing to offer God at all. I am poor in spirit. Blessed is the person who understands his or her poverty of spirit. Are y'all with me? Do you understand? Here's the way I would say it. It's the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of pride. It's the, listen, it's the opposite of I'm as good as the next guy. It's the opposite of saying, look, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. No, blessed are the poor, the bankrupt in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. He's saying that the way you get into the kingdom of God is through poverty of spirit. When we visit the Holy Land, I was talking about this earlier, we visit the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. And many, many, many hundreds of years ago, they, they uh, decreased the size of the door to enter the church of the nativity. Now, they did it, they say, in order to keep the camels and the horses from walking right into the church. But they made it so small that nobody can approach the birthplace of Jesus like this. The only way you get into that church is like this. You have to bow low to get in. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Nobody. Tell your neighbor nobody. Say it. Nobody struts into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody. Nobody walks in, I've decided to become a Christian. Nobody. Those for whom the kingdom of God is theirs have recognized I am bankrupt in my spirit. I am poor in spirit. And that produces the second blessing that he talks about in the next verse where he says, blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that mourn. Now this is the... This is the attitude, this attitude of mourning that flows very naturally from a recognition of my own poverty in spirit. That is that the lost person says, I am bankrupt before God. I have nothing to offer God. I'm a sinner. He's holy. I am hopeless and helpless. I have nothing for him. And so I'm not strutting before him. I am mourning over my bankrupt condition. I'm mourning over my sin. I'm grieving that I have so offended God and I'm coming with a poverty of spirit and a mourning in my sin. And he says, if you come with that poverty of spirit, the kingdom of God will be yours. And if you will come with mourning, you will be comforted. That is that there is a comfort that is offered to those who mourn over their sin. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 says, godly sorrow, mourning, 
over sin. Godly sorrow works repentance, which leads to salvation. So simply, I would say to you that every person who recognizes their spiritual poverty and and who mourns as a result of their spiritual bankruptcy will find comfort in the salvation that Jesus offers and entrance into the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes to throngs of people who are coming to him, strutting up to the kingdom. Our Messiah has come. We're ready. Let's take Rome over. You and your, you can heal, you can take down Rome. Let's go take back our independence. And Jesus says, you don't understand why I've come. Make sure you get this. You want to be in my kingdom? Put your sword away. You want to be in my kingdom? Let your chest deflate a little bit. You want to be in my kingdom? Recognize you're bankrupt and mourn over your sin and I'll bring you in to the kingdom and comfort you. So my question is, have you done that? Have you done that? Has there ever been a moment where you have acknowledged your own spiritual bankruptcy? And where you have said, I cannot save myself, I have nothing, zero, zip, to offer to God. Nothing. Oh God, I mourn in this condition before you. Have you ever done that? And trusted in Christ. If not, I invite you to do it today.